All right, so I have one thing as we get started. Uh, pumpkin killing is going to be back this year. So, you know what pumpkin killing is? We actually go out, uh, it's the Sunday before Halloween, so that is October 25th this year. I wasn't too sure last service, and someone's like, it's right here in the notes. And I'm like, great, got it. Okay, so October 25th, pumpkin killing. Uh, we we go, and you just kind of show up after third service. We're going to have pumpkins. You're going to eat pumpkins, shoot pump, pumpkins out of a cannon, roll pumpkins around, eat pumpkin pie, go home and throw up pumpkins. You're going to – it's a whole-day experience. It's a whole-day experience. Uh, so it, anyway, it's a free event. You can invite your neighbors, friends, whatever you want. Uh, it's, and and there's, there's a reason why we do this. And this isn't meant to be offensive, but sometimes it is. And if it is, whatever, just go with it. Uh, I don't try to be, I just am. Um, the reason we do this is Element is very purposeful that we don't do like a harvest festival or, or something like that. Uh, because we believe that Christians should not hide themselves from the rest of the world. We should be engaged and involved in it. And so we do this before Halloween so that on Halloween you guys are home. And if you don't have kids, you're handing out candy. Because your neighbors will come to your house and knock on your door and you get to say, hi, how's it going? Here's some candy. If you have kids, you get to go trick-or-treating and you get to go to your neighbor's houses and ring their doorbell. They open it and they're happy to see you and they give you candy. It's a wonderful experience. Now, we do that because we think it's important for you guys to be involved and know the people in your neighborhood. You live in the places where you do. You should connect with those people. You should get to know them. How are you going to be the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in neighborhoods if you're always holed up going to some church function on every holiday that people want to go out and hang out in? So, sorry if that was offensive. But go out and meet your neighbors. Halloween is a great, great uh, holiday to do that on. So, And hand out good candy. Nothing worse than going to, like, trick-or-treat and getting a Tootsie Roll. I know some of you like Tootsie Rolls. Whatever. <laughs> you can get a Tootsie Roll for, like, 20 for 5 cents. Go, that machine that's stuck with them all in it because nobody buys them. But hand out good candy. Okay. I think Jesus said that. Somewhere. So there you go. Uh, if you're new to Element, sorry. That's <laughs> just how it works sometimes. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. These are done by uh, this uh, intern we had working with us this summer. Her name was Tara Ferrari. She's amazing. She did she did all of this kind of artwork and stuff. She's pretty cool. She's back at Cal Poly right now, but we're hoping to get her back to do more because she's, like, pretty darn cool. Anyway, so inside of this, you'll get notes that go along with the message as well as some questions to take you a little deeper. On the back, there's announcements for kind of what we're... Uh, coming up and what we're going through. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. If you click on Live and Uversion, we'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, questions, verses, and announcements, all that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for reading of God's Word? We will get started. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 48 and 49. It says, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And I know you're thinking, what in the world does that even mean? Glad you asked. You will know by the time we're done today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God who comes and rescues and redeemed a lost and a broken people. I ask that you teach us what it means to bear your image and to live and walk in that image that we bear. So you would get great glory, your people would live in great joy, and the world would know how wonderful you are. Amen. Have a seat. 
All right, so we just made it through our last series called Coloring Book All-Stars. took us the entire summer to get through it. It's where we looked at all the, the happy people and heroes you would find in a kid's Bible coloring book. And so this is now kind of the inversion of that. We took all of our happy clouds and happy cityscape, and we burnt it down! Because now we hit Legends of the Fall. Legends of the Fall, it's not just named after a horrible Brad Pitt movie. It is, it is about all the bad guys in the Bible. So we're going to go and flip and start talking about the bad guys that are in there. Uh, today, uh, we're going to look at this thing called the fall. The fall. It's going to let us point all of our fingers back to Adam and Eve and say this is all their fault. We call Adam and Eve patient zero because when you find an outbreak of a disease, you look for the first person who had it and you call them Patient zero. That's Adam and Eve. Uh, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So we can get really mad today. We can point our fingers at Adam and Eve and say, How dare you? This is all your fault. When actually the truth is, we probably would have done much worse than they did. So we've got the story surrounding them. Take a hard look at ourselves in the midst of this. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. It's very easy to find. Unless you stole one of those Gideon Bibles, and it's not so hard, not so easy to find because they don't have a Genesis. Anyway, Genesis chapter 1. Boy, I know it's hot, okay? I know it's hot. I'm just losing brain cells as we go. So Adam and Eve, uh, we're going to start with looking at God making mankind and how this all comes together. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So this starts off at a place so we would know our origins. Okay, Origins are very important to who we are. Where do we come from? We know who we are in our lives based upon where we come from. So Genesis lets you know. You come from God. You are made by God. You are going to God. Ancient philosophers used to like to say that if we don't know our origins, we're like people who have stepped out onto a play and we don't know if we're in it or not or why we're even on the play, in the play, on the stage. What are we doing? Are we the hero? Are we the villain? Are we the playwright? What, what are we? Genesis 1.26 speaks to much of the problems today. It's that people are lost and they don't know where they come from and they don't know where they are going, but they want to know. And so Genesis 1.26 answers those questions. This is, this is Friday, okay? TGIF, sixth day of creation on Friday, just in time for the weekend. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, when God uses the words image and likeness, these are synonyms for one another, It shows you that so far God has set things in motion and he has things created according to their kinds. Like berries are going to make berries and trees are going to make trees and animals are going to make animals. But God makes these people. We are the only things in creation that are said to bear the image of God. So this makes the creation of mankind different than everything else. You are different than leptons and quarks and light and stars and even for all you PETA lovers, even different than the animals. Image and likeness. You have a mind. You can love. You can communicate. You have a body. You have a spirit. But it's more astounding than any of that. What are we? We are made in the image of God. John Calvin wrote, As a mirror reflects an image, so man is to reflect God. And before you go all crazy Christian TV on me, okay, I'm not saying we are God, because we're not. We're not. But when we love, we're showing God's loving God. When we forgive, we're showing God as a forgiving God. When we serve, we are showing God as a serving God. We were made as a people to reflect the goodness of God to his creation. And because you are made in the image and likeness of God, all of us have dignity, value, and worth. 
There's a lot of people today who go into groups that are called recovery groups. And there's nothing wrong with recovery groups, but recovery groups should always get to the point where they, w- where they understand what we need to recover. What do we need to recover? Re- the image and likeness of God. Redemption. Understanding who and what we were made to be. According to the Bible, your worth comes not from your performance and what you do. It comes from creation. It's why in Christian circles and Christian families and churches together, we are to value all life, young and old, healthy and sick, born and unborn, awake and asleep, whether you're in a coma or not. We value human life because it is a gift from God and it is all sacred. You are set apart from all animal life and plant life. Our problem today is we either think that we're so wonderful we are God or so horrible that we're just like animals. We're not animals and we're not God. We are image bearers of God and our lives are only going to make sense when we begin to understand that fact. Your worth comes from you being an image bearer of God. God loves you. And as Christians, we're supposed to treat creation and people with respect. With respect, Image and likeness also refers to God being a trinity, that he experiences perfect community and relationships within himself. And so being image bearers of him means we're created for relationships and love as well, to be in community with one another. What it means to be an image bearer of God is that we love and are involved in each other's lives as well. So Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now environmentalists will tell you, you are just like every other animal. You are not. Again, you are made in the image of God. You are given dominion. But dominion means stewardship and responsibility. We're to care for God's creation because it is God's creation, but we're supposed to steward it for him. If you talk to a Hindu or a New Age or a tree hugger, they'll say all creation is sacred. You shouldn't eat a cow. You shouldn't chop down a tree to build a house. A hypercapitalist on the other side will say, chop it all down, eat it all. It's all for your gain. Stewardship about creation says you use it well. You use it well. We harness its potential to improve and sustain human life. We are not animals. And this is very self-evident. If you ever drive around today in your car and see somebody walking their dog, they walk around, they have bags in their pocket or a bag on their hand because if their dog poops, they pick it up. You don't just leave it laying around. Or you shouldn't leave it laying around, right? If dogs are more advanced and evolved, they would carry their own bags, but they don't. You carry the bag. shows you you're more advanced. Genesis 127, so God created man in his own image. After the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we're created equal, but we're created different. Men and women are different. I know it's horrible to say in our society today, but God made men and women different. I married a woman. Thank God I didn't marry me. I would have to kill me. She's soft and beautiful and lovely, and she's so much smarter than I am. It's It's amazing. Modern psychology will tell you it's culture that makes kids different. It's, it's not. Boys, like girls will be hanging out in a room, playing together, doing whatever. Boys will run in with whatever they got and like act like they're shooting them, mowing them down. Blah, blah, blah. It's, boys just do it. It's, it's not culture. It's what boys are. Boys think, and, and adult men, think peeing in the backyard is fun. It's like, hey, why use a toilet? I can pee right there. God made me to do it. My wife does not think it's cool at all. My old dog would roll in it. I don't roll in it because I'm not an animal. See, there's a difference. There's a difference. When it says male and female, made in the image of God, this also refers to equality. Do you know that really only Christianity teaches true equality? You look at the Greek philosophers or other religions, they all hold women as being inferior. Genesis, the beginning of creation of men and women, shows women created equal, but 
different. We're different from each other. We are image bearers of God. And when we love each other, we are reflecting the love of the Trinity correctly. So now open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. That's the creation of man, so you got that backstory. In Genesis 2, Moses is going to now help you to understand life upon the earth. He's going to go from a macro view, which is the heavens and the earth, to a micro view, the earth and the heavens. In your Bible, if you notice, what you'll have is chapter 1. It's got all these funky endants, all the way to Genesis 2, uh, verse 4. All these endants, because that's all poetry. It's all song. After you get to Genesis 2, 4, it goes full justification, because this now becomes narrative. It's now narrative, and it's story. And there's a difference between the two. Genesis 1 is the heavens as looking at the earth. Genesis 2 onward is showing you the earth as looking up towards everything else. It's a very micro view. Genesis 2, 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So now it kind of switches right there. Genesis chapter 2 and 3 are going to go on to explain the contrast of this is God's vision of how he made the world and why is our world the way that it is today. Why, when you drive up to a roundabout, do you want to kill every person in front of you? Right? Why is it like that? Well, this is what Genesis 2 and 3 are going to explain. God's vision versus what has happened. And to get that, you've got to understand two words. The first word is the word shalom. Okay, shalom means peace, but it's so much more than just simple thinking of peace. Shalom means everything's in the right place, in the right space, in the right time, in the right relationship. Everything is all right between you and God. It is God's favor and God's blessing. The earth and how the earth was created and man was to live and it was to be in shalom, in peace with God. Now, the second word is this word called tob. It's actually pronounced tob, but I like the how it say how it's actually written, tob. And this is the word that is translated as good. And the word for good refers to everything that is good in its broadest sense possible. It's that which is beautiful and that which is attractive and majestic and useful and profitable and that which is morally right. Now, who do you think gets to call what is good and what is not good? Who gets the right to call that? Right. Boy, you are so much better than the last two services. I asked, that's like five people. God, look, if you say God or Jesus, I'd accept either one. 50% of the time, you're going to be right. So just, you can throw that out there, you're going to be good. So how does the pristine shalom, tobe, and harmony between God and man and nature come to be what it is today? Moses tells you that it's not that the earth or creation is evil. It's that evil is humanly wrought, and it will start with this, this couple called Adam and Eve. God gives humanity what's called a vestige of free will, but it's only beneficial insofar as it's exercised in accordance with God's divine will. Any abuse of the power that God has given mankind always makes disaster inevitable. We were supposed to live in shalom and tobes, harmony with God, not evil and self-sufficiency. Genesis 2, verse 5, so it says, And the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, here you get the word Adam, Adam for Adam means red or clay or like dirt, became a living creature. The word creature is the word nefesh, nefesh. We usually translate that word as soul, as soul. The man became a living soul. Uh, The word nefesh has these very ancient roots that mean to breathe. So a soul is something that takes in air from God and breathes it back out. You are different than everything else that was created. You are made in the image of God. You have a che nefesh, a living soul. It's really beautiful words in the book of Genesis. Now in Genesis 1, nothing is ever said about what man was made from. Here you learn he's from the earth, from dust, from clay. The verb that's used there, 
formed, it's used as a potter making a piece of pottery that God molds and he animates his creation. Genesis is constantly trying to show you the glory and the insignificance of man at the exact same time. Man has this special place in the creation. We weren't made like everything else where God speaks into existence. God actually formed you. Mankind is handmade. And the breath of God is breathed into that. You are not here by chance. You are here by God's decree. You are sacred. We bear His image because God has great affection for us. But Genesis wants you to know that we are also lowly. We come from the earth, from the dust. But God breathes into us. We should be humble and still know that God has given us a great honor. Following? Verse 9, chapter 2. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, in ancient tales, the search for the tree of life is like the central thing of every quest. In the scriptures, the central theme is God's relationship with man, and man's relationship with God, and man's relationship with each other. And these trees are like backdrop to that. They're not the center of the story God's relationship with man is. So, What are these two trees? First one is the tree of life. This tells you human beings were not made immortal. We were made mortal with the capacity to die. The only reason we live and stay alive is faithful obedience with God. The point is that God is the living God. When we're separated from the living God, we have separated ourselves from our source of life. The other tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you don't know, these are two huge separations in perspective. Good and evil. Good is tov, and evil is the words vara, the evil. And this is kind of like the tree that man has always sought to get God out of our lives. Like, you go to school, you get educated beyond your intelligence, and it's like, I don't need God, I'm too smart for God, I'm smarter than God. You know, you, you make a whole lot of money, I don't need to trust God for anything, I got all that I need. It's like, or you get drunk or lit all the time, and it's like, I don't need God because I don't even care about anything anymore. It's, it's all this information apart from God. The scriptures will show you that wisdom and life is thinking in line with who God is. Folly is sneaking apart from him. And so daily you have Adam, and he is given this opportunity every day to choose wisdom or folly, to choose life or to choose death. And some people have read this and they ask, well, why doesn't God want us to know the good from the evil? That, that's not what the text is saying. That's not what it's saying at all. Again, good and evil in Hebrew, they're two words. They're tov for good and vara for evil. To not know good and evil simply means to be innocent. That's all. It doesn't mean to be naive. Like when your buddy cracks a joke and goes, you know what I mean? You're like... Nope. That's naive, okay? It's not naive. It's innocence. We don't need to know certain things. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What God tells Adam is that there are some things in your life you never need to experience. You simply need to trust me for these things. I mean, some things we don't need to know. Like, imagine if you dated one person your entire life. That's all that you dated. And you got married, and, you know, sometimes people say, well, they're a bad kisser. How would you know? If they're the only person you ever kissed, how would you know if someone's a bad kisser or not? You wouldn't know. There's some things you don't need to know. Like, you don't need to know what a hangover feels like. You don't need to know what a hangover feels like. You don't need to know what detox feels like. There's some things we just don't need to know. I mean, think about this. God said, trust me, Adam. And God gives Adam food, great weather, lots of fruit to eat. He's going to give him a naked woman. That's a good God, okay? I don't know what you... That's a a good God. 
And God just keeps saying, trust me, Adam. I know what you need. I know what you need. And Adam is like us every day. You know, are we going to obey? Are we going to listen? You, know, every, you, in a sense, every day have the same choice as Adam. Every single day. How about lying? Are you going to tell the truth? Are you going to hide yourself from others? How are you doing? Fine, leave me alone. I'm okay. I, do you lie and bolster yourself up? Do you lie so you don't look as dumb as you think you are? Do you, I mean, what, what, is, what, what do you do? You know, do you use the internet for the good or for the evil? What, what do you use it for? Uh, do you, are you somebody that always talks about all these things that you're going to do, but you never follow through? I mean, what, what kind of things are you doing in your life? How are you doing? Most of the destruction in our lives comes because we choose to eat the wrong tree. We are choosing to eat evil. And so this is what God is trying to grow Adam in. Trust me, Adam. Trust me. I will give you all the things that you need. So what God does is he has Adam go out and name all of the animals. When Adam names the animals, he's taking responsibility for them. So he's showing that he has stewardship over these things. And as he does this, Adam notices that he is alone. Oh, look, there's a cat and there's a boy cat. And there's a dog and that, that's a boy dog. And there's a doe deer, a female deer, and that's a buck. Is that what you call it, a buck? And a buck, you know. A dollar. There's a buck, right? And and so he sees all, and he looks and he see, and he see, notices that he's alone, and there's no corresponding partner or helper with with him. So he starts to get a little bit sad. And you read in the scriptures, and God says it's not good for the man to be alone. This is before sin has entered the world. Everything is still good. Shalom is still there, but man is alone. And it's not good. This tells you, even in this great shalom environment, men are not okay on their own. Just, just how it is. Uh, again, I told you this before. When I met my wife, I had a mullet and was wearing MC Hammer pants. Not good, okay? Not good. I thought pastels were cool colors and boys should wear them. Not true. Men will walk around with T-shirts that say ding-dongs and think they're cool, okay? I, there are stores that sell shirts that say FBI, female body inspector. Men will buy these shirts and think that women think that they're funny. Women don't think you're funny. Okay, men are not good on their own. Okay, that's just it's not good. So God says, "I will make a helper fit for him." Now, this is the Hebrew word "ezer." It means a fitting helper, one that corresponds to Adam's humanity. So, fit would be like uh, if you're into Comic Con and think George Lucas is a genius, marry somebody like that. Okay, look for that person. Like my wife likes sci-fi. I like sci-fi. We signed up last year to be able to maybe get tickets for Comic Con. You know. Half of you I just lost. I know. It's okay. But, you know, it's cool. I, but I, there are certain things like we don't, like she likes camping. I hate camping. You know, but whatever. I, I've gone twice. Once. Twice. I don't know. Okay. So, so you know, I've got, but, but you marry somebody who likes camping, try and marry somebody who likes camping. You, got, you got, bring these things together. The other word is the word helper. Helper. This is a beautiful word, but in our culture today, we're like, oh, it's such a sexist word. Helper. Guys, I will tell you, feminism in our culture, it treats women with the value of a rental car. That's what it treats women like. Uh, expensive, get what you want. Guys will take you out, do whatever, and then drop you off and high-five all their buddies because they returned the car, and now they're free. I mean, stop doing that, ladies. That is not helper. That is not... Do you know the Holy Spirit is said to be our helper? God is called our present help in times of need. God calls himself... It's not a term of denigration. It's a term that's deep and holy and wonderful. When there are decisions to make in our home, who makes them? 
My wife and I make them together. I mean, I believe that men should lead their families and lives well, but apart from the wives that God places into our lives, we're never going to be complete or make the right decisions without them. I trust my wife more than anybody. And I've told you guys this before. If it's like the whole world is going to blow up or my wife dies, you better kiss your butt goodbye. Okay? Because you're all going, because all I care about really, I know I'm very selfish, but I care about her. Okay? I care about her. You all can just, right? It's just how it is. You better hope that I'm never left with that choice because she wins. Okay? She wins every single time. Girls, this means you need a guy you can help, not a guy you can fix. You know, it's not like, oh, he's really nice and got a drug, drug addiction and lives in a tent. That's fixing. Okay? That's fixing. It's not helping. Helping is you find a guy who, who's godly and he loves Jesus. Maybe he's gone as far as he can without you and needs you to go further. It doesn't mean that he needs to know more of the Bible than you. Sometimes it just means he loves Jesus and you come along and you guys move forward together. So what God does is he has Adam fall asleep. And while Adam is sleeping, God takes out one of Adam's ribs. And he's going to fashion woman out of this, a helper fit for him from his side, showing again that she is his equal. Who makes the woman? God makes the woman. And he kind of takes her like a father down the island. He's going to marry, he's going to marry her to Adam. Now think about Eve. I, I kind of, I'm like, man, this poor girl, right? You know, she gets made. She gets, meets God. She's naked, walks down an aisle, meets her husband, gets married all in one day. That is a big day. Okay, I mean, holy cow, you want to talk about that? That's a day. And so Adam, he's very tender and kind, and Adam starts to sing to her. I mean, and what you see in the scriptures, that, that he's so tender in this that the first recorded words of human speech are song. It may not even have been a very good song, but what does she know? She's never heard a song. You know, it's like, oh, this is a great song. Ever since then, women always fall for guys who like can play music. Oh, you know, he's got track marks on his arm, he's illiterate, and lives in a tent in the park, but he sang me a song, I love him. Hey, you, you girls, you're weird, okay? <laughs> so he sings to her. Uh, verse 23, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of the man. You know, we don't know the original tune. I'm sure it was awesome. You know, but Adam says he cannot separate himself for his necessity for Eve any more than he can separate his own bones from his flesh and survive. I mean, really, really beautiful words. And then what Adam does is he names her. He names her woman. This is a name that is derived from his own name. He promises before God in front of the woman he will forever care for her. By giving her this name derived from his own name, he is also acknowledging her to be his equal. And when we talk about Adam and Eve, you can't misunderstand this. They're, they're not part of the garden. God has made them and placed them into the garden. They're, they are there to take care of the garden, to live in beauty because beauty is tov. Adam and Eve live in the garden by the grace and the goodness of God. That's how they live in it. The man and the woman were to enjoy everything in this garden. They're simply instructed to trust God that he knew the good in all things. You following there? Go to chapter 3. This is where it all goes bad. Chapter 3. Now, chapter 3, what happens is eventually Eve gets drawn into this conversation with the serpent, with the snake, which I know it's really odd when you think about it. But she begins to become focused on this tree and this fruit that's forbidden, that she's not supposed to eat. What's important to see in Genesis 3 is that in the end, Eve's mind becomes open to the idea that God may be overly stringent and overly strict in his commands. And if God is unreasonably strict in his commands, can can God really know all that's good? Isn't he just controlling? And so in the garden in Genesis 3, the serpent essentially will call God a liar. 
He will say, God doesn't really want you to eat this fruit because you're going to like it, and God doesn't want you to be like him. I mean, because, you know, Eve, you could be like him. You're already made in his image. God just doesn't want you fulfilled. God's not a good God. He's a mean God. And if God was really a good God, he would give you whatever you wanted in your life. God wants to deprive you of what you want. And a subtle change starts to take place where Eve starts to think the serpent is not so bad and maybe God himself is not so good. This is what happens to us all the time. We look at the scriptures and we say, oh, the Bible, it's so outdated. I don't need to listen to God in everything in my life, really. You know, I can lie, I can cheat, I can shack up, I can steal from my office, I can do whatever I want because I know better than God what is good for me. You know what that is? That's the lie. That's, that's the lie. You get to be like God. You get to decide what is good and what is not good. You, you get to. That's the lie. In Genesis 1, you're told man was already like God because he's made in the image of God, but God calls what is good and what is not. The man and the woman, they will both eat from this tree that God said not to. Genesis 3, verse 7, this is what happens after they eat. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, see, originally, this nakedness was with no shame. It's like, it's like woo! Maybe, don't picture it, right? But woo, you know, they're all, they're all naked. And now all of a sudden, it's like, oh, Oh, and they're running, and, and, it, and it says, it says, and they sewed big leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why? Why? Because they're exposed. Now they're exposed. Do you know for the rest of the scriptures, shame and nakedness are now used interchangeably as words? Because what was supposed to be so open and so honest and so beautiful has now been marred. The image of God in us has been distorted and destroyed. Their sin made them lose their innocence and their connection with God and each other. They become separated from each other and from God. This means that they died. They became separated from God who was life. They died just like God promised, right here. They're no longer going to know the beauty of innocence. They have lost the good and what it means to lay before one another without ever feeling ashamed. That's all gone. They've now lost true life that comes from being a connection with the world around them and ultimately, and most importantly, connection with God. I think the saddest part comes next. Verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Usually in the Old Testament, when you see God walking on the earth, you know who that is? Jesus. Again, see? See? 50% of the time, you're going to be right. You just say it out loud. Okay. So, it, Jesus, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord. You used to be like, Hey, God! Woo! And you're naked. I know! Sweet! Have you seen the woman? She's hot. You know, I mean, just... And now it's like, here comes Jesus, and they run and they hide. Now, now they don't want God to see them. They don't want God to know who they really are. They don't want God to see who they are down in the deep depths of their soul. And they hid themselves in the presence of the Lord, God, among the trees of the garden. They are separated from him. He is the only one who could have shown them what the good is, and yet they run and hide from him, just like we still do. Just like we still do. Now, Adam, as the head of the human race, died. And because he died, we're all born into this thing that is called sin. Sin. We call, we'll talk about this next week a little bit, but it's called original sin. We have this propensity rooted deep down in our souls to seek what we think is good rather than what God says is good. Our entire world today is in disarray because man cannot know the good on his own apart from God showing it to us. 
to this day, sin run, run, runs rampant in our lives. It causes us to be separated from each other. We keep doing stupid things to each other. We're offended for the tiny little, in, tiniest little infraction. We're always ready to get irritated because sin causes us to want to separate from one another. It causes us to want to separate from our Creator. God doesn't really know all that's good for me. I can choose what's right for me. And eventually, we become separated from our own flesh. That's sin, that's death. What you see in the story of Adam and Eve is really the story of the first funeral. I know you go to a funeral day and you've and you got pews and pulpits and caskets and wood paneling. Some have you know, plasma screen TVs and, and three-piece suits. But this is the first funeral. This is death. This is separation from life. Now, the rest of Genesis 3 will show you the consequences of what happened because of what Adam and Eve did. But I want you to look at Genesis 3.15. Because here God also offers hope. God looks out and he starts talking to the serpent. And this is what he says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This means we are now in a war and Satan is our enemy. Satan isn't God's enemy. And not like those movies where it's like, oh, God against Satan. Who's going to win, right? Nobody stands against God. Satan is not God's enemy. Satan is our enemy. It's why on the cross we say Jesus defeated our enemies of Satan's sin and death. So he says this, he shall, he shall bruise your head, meaning Satan is going to be crushed when Jesus comes, but in the meantime, and you shall bruise his heel. He will wound Jesus by hurting his people. You know what theologians call this statement? They call it the proto-evangelion. They call it the preaching of the very first gospel. Who preaches the gospel the very first time to mankind? Jesus. Or God. I take both. Okay, we're okay. Jesus stands in the garden when mankind has ran away from him and fallen and trying to hide themselves from him. And what does he say? I'm going to send myself, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to rescue you. The last gospel you see in the scriptures is in Revelation 14, 6, and the angel preaches that last gospel. So what God does is he then expels Adam and Eve from the garden, away from the tree of life. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve, so Adam renames her again, saying, look, even through all this, I will now take responsibility, and I will love her for the rest of my life. Uh, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I think that is also grace for us as well. But that's the story of Adam and Eve. It's our story as well. God made us to live in relationship with him. But we have sinned. We have run away. Our shame stands out in the open just like we were naked. But Jesus comes, and he makes these promises that he will rescue, that he will redeem, that he will take responsibility for us and take care of our sin problem. Romans 5, 8 through 11 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, running away, hiding ourselves, right? Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus takes responsibility for us and our lostness and our brokenness, and he calls us home. God goes looking for Adam and Eve in the garden when they fall. God comes looking for us when we sin, when we fall, when we run away. God takes on human flesh to bring us home. In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the second Adam, the one who brought life instead of death. Like I called Adam and Eve patient zero. You know what Jesus was? Patient zero in regard to redemption and new life. He is the one that we should look to. Jesus is the one we look to. 
Like Adam renamed his wife, his bride, Eve, Jesus comes and he remakes us and renews us. 2 Corinthians 2.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God redeems us, remakes us, renames us. See, the story of the gospel is not about the lostness of Adam and Eve. The story of Adam and Eve isn't even the story of Adam and Eve. The story is of God's redemption who came to rescue broken and fallen people. We always keep thinking that we can do it all on our own. And yet Jesus is the one who redeems. He is the one who does it. Do you know that the word human comes from a Latin root for humility? Humility, to be the people God intends for us to be in the midst of all the glory that he placed us in means to be humble people. If we want to live who God made us to be, we need to learn the humility of trusting him that he is the one who knows the good in all things. I mean, God created some amazing things. Look through some telescopes and some pictures you see today. They're really amazing. And yet God considers humanity to still be his greatest creation. And that's not to give us a big head. It's to help us to understand that God has bestowed dignity and value and worth on people. God does this out of love. But Genesis reminds us that we must live in humility and understand we're not God. We're not the centerpiece of his creation. God is always the center of everything. He is the center of the universe, and we cannot boast or brag like we are. We need to trust him because he is the one who knows the good. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so are also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's the verse I started with. Does it make a little more sense? now say yes we're going to start over okay okay what this means is where adam and eve failed jesus succeeded that's what it means where adam and eve were faithless jesus was faithful where adam and eve sinned jesus was sinless where adam and eve didn't finish the work jesus finishes the work jesus on the cross cries out it is finished that's the words it is paid in full the work is done We now get to have a relationship with God, with others. We get to become new people. We get to love and serve and help and care. We get to be the people God intends for us to be. And the question kind of becomes, after all the beauty and the wonder that God has made, what are we now making? Because in Genesis, it clearly shows us that God intends for us to live and work in the garden on the earth, that we partner with God in creating culture and community and love and grace that all points back to who he is. So what are we making? Especially if you call yourself a believer. What are we making? How are we partnering in this? Do we, do we really trust God that he knows all that is good? Do we really trust him in that? Or do we think there's a few places where maybe he just doesn't know all of the good, so I don't really need to trust him in everything? You know, maybe most things, but not really everything, because right here, this is really important to me. How do we live? What are we making? How are we trusting him in all things? This is why every week we talk about communion. You know, it's not just a a nice little thing that we do. Jesus says, you do this to remember me. Why? To understand that he is our patient zero in regard to redemption. That you break that cracker like his body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Every time we meet, we take communion. We offer it to you as a response. We don't pass it to you. You've got to get out of your seat and go and, and take it. But it's to remind us 
of what Jesus has done. We lay all of our brokenness, all of our non-humbleness, all of the places we think we know better than God down at the foot of the cross. And we live and we walk in the grace and the goodness that he has provided, knowing that he is good. How do we know he is good? Because he promised himself to save us in Genesis 3.15, and Jesus comes thousands of years later to fulfill that promise to save us. He is the only one who is faithful. We are not faithful people, but thank goodness we serve a faithful and good God who has rescued and redeemed us. The band's going to come up. And as they do, uh, you're free to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. If you need prayer, if you're in a spot today where, where you're feeling like you're trying to do it all on your own, like you think you can you know, figure it out and you know the good for yourself, they would love to pray with you. I mean, really, if you, if you have any needs in your life, they'd love to pray with you, but they'd really love to talk to you about Jesus because Jesus is awesome. Uh, there's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving somebody part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. Again, it's just like communion. It's like it's response to what he has done. There's food in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat. And as you do that, we, we do that for the purpose that you would meet some other people, that you would talk to some other people, and maybe go through some sermon notes and ask some of the questions and have people in your life that can take you a little bit deeper. You know, if you're not in a gospel community, hopefully you have some friends you can kind of talk that through or do it with your family. But go deeper. Go deeper. You know, don't just leave it, oh, I went to church on Sunday, we talked about that to me. But, you know, really, what is the depth of that, that we now have our life and it is found in the person of Jesus Christ? What does that really mean? How is it lived out? How do we today partner with God in creating a culture and a world? Because God intends for us to do that with him, partnering together. What are we making? How are we living? How are we trusting our entire selves into his good and glorious grace, showing who he is to everybody? It comes when we realize that he is who he said he was, that he is always good, that he is the one who has brought peace to us again. And we live in the humility of trusting him in all things. That's how it works. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be those who live lives in humbleness, trusting you to know the good. Father, quite honestly, we are always stepping into places where we think we know better than you what is right for our lives. And we are constantly running the, our lives right off the rails. And yet, even in those situations, when we run our lives off the rails and we want to hide from you because we've done the same stupid thing again, you are still there to lift us out of the pit that we have put ourselves into. You still call us to lift up your name in all things. You still say, that we are your children. You still give us mission and purpose and identity and hope. Teach us to understand that we're not the ones who clean ourselves up, that you're the one who cleans us. That we're not the ones who have to get it all together before you like us or love us, that you take us exactly as we are and rescue us where we are and then mold our hearts and lives into who you intended for us to be. Teach us to trust you, to come as we are, and to trust you in all things. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.